How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Go, 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 then go, 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 go. Ladies and gentlemen, NBs and everybody, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Oh, that was that, that was, was wonderful, Tom. But boy, what happened to the music? Just something what went on. Yeah, well, I, I was trying to gradually slide it down. Uh, yeah, that worked. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad that's what we're here for, right? You know, who we are, why we do what we do, with that in mind. Speaking of minds. Did you introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Uh, longtime listeners will recognize this guest, best-selling author, multiple times published. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Welcome back, Dr. Andrew Budson, as well as new guest, Elizabeth Kensinger. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to both of you. Nice to have you here. And why are we here? Because of this new book, Why We Forget and How to Remember Better, The Science Behind Memory. How did the two of you connect over this book? Dr. Kensinger, let's start with you. Sure. So I've had the pleasure of knowing Andrew for quite a while. We actually were trainees in the same lab um, many years ago. We had the privilege of working together with Dan Schachter, studying different aspects of human memory. And so it was a really exciting opportunity uh, a couple of decades later for us to have this opportunity to reconnect over writing this book. Um, and it was actually terrific where a lot of the initial research and thought process for the book was actually happening in the pandemic. And I think for both of us, it was a really anchoring experience to know that whatever else was going on in the world, we were waking up and working on this book and talking to one another and having that connection through the pandemic. So it was uh, a really great opportunity that, that came about at the right time. Uh, so you were able to stay connected to at least one other human being during this exactly. whole isolation of the pandemic. Wow. Dr. Budson, what's this like for you working with, with your old friend? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's really been a, a pleasure. Uh, Dr. Kensinger and I have been working together, I think, for uh, uh, over 25 years now. And um, uh, so when I was um, finishing my, uh, my neurology residency uh, training, uh, uh, she was a undergraduate uh, working on her her senior uh, thesis at uh, at Harvard, and um, although I had like you know graduated from college, graduated from medical school, was about to finish my residency, she knew more about experimental psychology uh, back then than I did, and she actually taught me how to do my very first experiment. And um, what was that? Had, what was the first experiment? So the first experiment was to look at uh, whether you could induce uh, false memories in different populations and then whether you could use a procedure to actually reduce those false memories over time. And so uh, Elizabeth uh, did 
this with healthy older adults uh, and young adults, and then I did it in individuals with Alzheimer's uh, disease. Fascinating. Yeah. So you were already interested, both of you, in this subject of memory? Absolutely. How did, I'm just curious, how did that begin? Andrew, well, for me, it was a it was a multi part process. So I I had actually gone into my undergraduate years pretty certain that I wanted to be a chemist, <laughs> and then after a few chemistry labs, realized that maybe that wasn't what I wanted to do. And so I actually have to credit my mother here, where she gave me the advice of going to the bookstore. And this is back in the day when the college bookstore actually had physical books on shelves. And so she told me to wander the aisles and find books that I wanted to read, and then enroll in those courses. And it turned out that the books that I found that I really wanted to read were this section of books on human memory. Um, and so I enrolled in that course that was actually being taught by Dan Schachter, who, who later brought Andrew and I together in his lab as, as uh, working together. Um, and so that was really my first exposure to human memory. And I have to say that it was one of those demonstrations where we realized that we're all subject to false memories and that they're quite easy to occur that uh, basically immediately had me hooked. I realized that there was so much that I didn't understand about how my own memory operated and I was fascinated and wanted to learn more. And that has just continued to propel my interest for the, for the last few decades. It's really something we take for granted so much, isn't it? So much just so that we like, will think that space is broken before our memory is faulty. <laughs> the Mandela effects, if everyone here has heard of that. Yeah. It, it's it's almost adorable how many people would believe that we jump between alternate realities rather than misremember something. So, Dr. Joe, have you heard of the Mandela effect? I have, but why don't you okay. tell us about it a little bit? Go ahead. So, it's named after the widespread supposition people had that Nelson Mandela had died long before he did. So, they just misremembered the events. So, and the way that I've heard it explains or the, the most common example aside from that is remember the, you know, the Berenstain bears, the books. Yeah. Yeah. I could have sworn it said Berenstain bears. And so could have I, because I, I didn't actually like really pay close attention to the title because why would I, I was seven at the oldest when I had those books, but people are so confident in that. Maybe, maybe where my mind is jumping between dimensions. Maybe that's why. And, and yeah, it's a, uh... <laughs> it's a fascinating phenomenon. You know, working in psychiatry, we see people confused about memories and yet how powerful memories can be, whether they are true or not. So how does, how does that connect with why we forget and how to remember better? Dr. Butson, tell us, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so we wanted to write a book that would uh, really explain how memory works. And the reason that we wanted to do this to explain it is because if people understand how memory works, how we can store information, how we can retrieve information, and how this is really a effortful and creative process, the reasons that we have trouble remembering things sometimes, the reason we develop false memories, this all becomes natural, becomes easy to understand and easy to remember. So that was sort of the, uh, 
the 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 crux of why we wanted to write the book. So it it it's not just in about having a difficulty with memory or having ongoing memory loss due to various conditions. So what what is the mechanism? I mean, we, how do we remember things? So we talk in the book about the fact that memory is really a cycle of three different phases that we're consistently needing to go through. And the first phase is what is referred to as encoding, which is literally creating a code in the brain that can hold on to something from the present moment and be able to hold on to it so that you have access to it later on. Then there's the phase of storage, where you actually have to stabilize that information. We talk about it as writing the blueprint. So at encoding, you're kind of putting building blocks together. And then at that storage phase, you're writing the blueprints for how all of those building blocks went together. And then I think the most misunderstood phase is probably the retrieval phase, because the way that we want to think about that is actually an active phase where we're rebuilding those representations that we encoded. We're actually putting those building blocks together again. We're using the blueprints to figure out which blocks to pull and where we need to put them. But then when we retrieve that memory, we actually have to restart that cycle again. And so at that moment of retrieval, we can update information, you know, I like to talk about this in useful ways where if, uh, you know, our friend has cut their hair, we want to update the, the memory of what our friend looks like so we can recognize them the next time. And so as we re-encode uh, that memory, we're going to make some of those updates. If we suddenly have new information that changes our understanding of what happened previously, we're going to include that new information in the memory representation that we're re-encoding and restoring. And so we're always going through that three-phase cyclical process of memory. And I think if you recognize that, that it's such a dynamic and repeating process and that at every stage, it's a true construction and effortful process, as Andrew said, then it becomes much more intuitive to understand all the ways in which we can have errors where we don't assemble something correctly, we miss some pieces, we add in some erroneous pieces, et cetera. The retrieval part, it's it almost sounds like, oh, do we still have the capacity to retrieve the original memory, right? So the, the memory of the person before they got their haircut. And how do we then distinguish that? I mean, what's our capacity? It's a great question. And there are some examples like the friend with a haircut where of course you can have multiple representations of a person. And so you can recall that content at different times when it might be relevant. So if you're trying to remember what your friend looked like, a childhood friend, you might be able to remember what they looked like when they were 12, even though now they're much older than that. But in many ways, especially when we're talking about single events, I think it's really important to get rid of this idea that there is an original memory that just sits somewhere and is re-accessed because it is instead this dynamic process. And so once you retrieve that event and you think about it, you actually are changing in subtle ways or sometimes not so subtle ways, the memory representations, you're overriding blueprints potentially. And so you really are changing the memory and it's not as if there's that original set of blueprints or that original building block structure that you can get back to. And, and, and I just want to add that this is one of the reasons that you might be 
absolutely certain that you recall exactly how some how something happened and your your friend or your family member they're absolutely certain that it happened a different way and that's because you have each you know subtly changed the memories in different ways from different vantage points and due to different times that you were uh, retrieving it and um, incorporated different things, you know, to use uh, uh, Tom's little example as we came back from the break, you know, you might now think there's a Dr. Pepper, you know, in your memory because you remember Tom talking about a Dr. Pepper, but that wasn't really in the original memory, but now it's part of it. And now you think that Dr. Pepper was really there at that picnic or whatever it was. It's like when you're writing and you overhear a word and suddenly the words on the paper are on the screen. Absolutely. So, so from an evolutionary point of view, how is this an advantage to us? Dr. Budson, what, what do you think? How is this an advantage? Yeah, well, this gets at what the purpose of memory is, you know, and you're right that if we think, well, the purpose of memory is obviously to recall information and the more verbatim that we can recall it, the better. But in fact, it was actually some work that was done in, in part by our mentor, uh, Dan Schachter, who uh, realized that the purpose of memory isn't really to recall information verbatim. The purpose is to be able to use prior information to understand the present moment in time and to be able to help to plan for the future. And so if the purpose of memory is to understand the present, it may not be important to remember the exact details of the past. In fact, it could even be harmful. And uh, uh, Elizabeth uh, came up with a, a great example of when you want to go to the airport. I'm gonna let her tell that little example. Uh, so imagine you're making a decision like when you need to leave for the airport in order to make your flight on time. You can imagine that it would be really inefficient if the information that you were using to make that decision was a specific memory of every prior flight you'd taken, every prior airport you'd been in, what gate you left from, what the flight attendants' uniforms look like, right? There's a lot of that content that is really not helpful. But what is very helpful is for you to quickly get to kind of a, a gist, a general memory of in general, how large is an airport in a major city? How far might the walk be between security and your gate? How long might the security line be? And so we actually do this really effortlessly where we are able to extract that kind of higher level information that's really what's critical for our decision-making and our memories prune out all of those details that we would otherwise be very easy to just get bogged down in and to slow our decision-making and make it less efficient. So how is that connected with the concept of association then? Where, am I missing something here? Where I think of an airport and I will associate all these different factors to it. But what you're saying is if I say, well, sort of rigidly, just because I'm remembering the airport means I have to go to gate C, even if my flight now is gate D. Is that, is that what we're looking at? 
Yeah, I mean, I think instead of um, remembering all the individual specifics, you're able to remember the gist. Like, I need to, you know, go to a gate, you know, a, one of the gates. It right. doesn't have to be, you know, a specific uh, uh, gate. And, you know, this is helpful, you know, sort of all, all the time. It's like, if you want to, you know, retrieve a, a, a screwdriver, you know, and you're trying to think about this tool, you don't want to be thinking of like every time in the past you've ever used a screwdriver, right? You, know, you just want to be able to, you know, grab the tool uh, uh, that you need. So we're always sort of, you know, extracting the meaning or the gist of uh, information. And over time, you know, some of these details may survive, but most details don't. And we just remember the gist of it. And that's because it's the gist of the memories that's most helpful. And most of the time, the specific details are not helpful. And, and you know, as a psychiatrist, I, I really kind of wonder how, how do I incorporate this into, you know, the psychotherapy where so much of it is really based on what are perceived childhood memories or perceived trauma memories or something, um, which of course can, can be distorted, but they still feel so real to that person. So it's one thing about talking about remembering, you know, what a screwdriver looks like, but what about these other sort of emotional-based memories, these relationship-based memories? So I think we can we can think about that in two ways. We can think about emotional memories for individuals who aren't experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety disorders as a result of what they've experienced. And there what you know our research has suggested is that emotion really serves to enhance some details of a memory but also to have other details of those memories be less accessible. So for instance, if people see something like a snake on their hike in the forest, they might have very good memory for what that snake looked like and maybe where it was in the tree or on the trail, but they might have very poor memory for any of the broader context of what was going on on the hike. They might not remember who else was there with them. It's kind of as if you get this sort of tunnel vision and tunnel memory essentially um, for certain details. And that's also interesting because people don't always have the subjective awareness that there are details that are missing. It can feel like that memory is very vivid and very complete, even though there actually are some elements that essentially don't get built or stored in those blueprints. And so they're not available later on to people. Now, what the research suggests is happening if you're someone who does have PTSD as a result of something that you've experienced, though, is that something very different happens in that memory cycle that we talked about. And for reasons that I think still aren't entirely well understood, what seems to happen is just that retrieval process kind of starts happening when it shouldn't. Right. All of a sudden, someone is, is building that building block uh, structure again, even though this isn't the right context, this isn't the right moment, that memory isn't useful, there was nothing that needed to cue that information, and yet suddenly they're building it. Um, and so we've thought about this a little bit, that it's, it's as if there's a, a contractor in the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is typically overseeing that building process, you know, helping to get those blueprints written, helping to use those blueprints to get that structure built at retrieval. And in individuals with post-traumatic stress disorder, it's as if the contractor is off doing something else and not actually paying attention to what the builders are doing. And so those retrieval structures are being built 
involuntarily is the way that the person experiences it. And again, often at these inopportune moments. And, and for that post-traumatic stress retrieval, there's, there's usually some trigger. Does there always need to be a trigger when it comes to memory? Yeah, I, mean, I would say there's, there's usually a trigger that may be identified or not identified. So I, I agree. I think there's usually a trigger, although sometimes people are not aware of it. The triggers don't necessarily have to be consciously recognized. Right, right, absolutely. To trigger, uh, to trigger the memory. You know, I, I did want to comment um, a little bit about your uh, question about, you know, can there be false memories of sort of early childhood uh, trauma. And, you know, uh, Elizabeth uh, Loftus, uh, uh, a very uh, renowned uh, memory researcher has done studies to show that uh, one can um, implant memories in children simply by asking them questions repeatedly about, you know, did they ever have an experience? Did the experience include this? Did the experience include that? And can lead people to think they were lost in a shopping mall or took a ride on a hot air balloon. You know, there's all sorts of um, uh, studies that have shown this. Now, I wanna state very clearly, of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, horrific things that have happened to children, including, you know, all forms of abuse. But um, one does need to be careful when questioning individuals of any age, but especially children, such that it's not done in a way that can inadvertently uh, create a false memory. Very important distinction. One of, one of the endorsements on, on the back of the book by Dr. Schachter, your mentor, and who says, by reading this book, you will come to see that some, perhaps many of the ideas you had about memory are incomplete or flat out wrong. I mean, I, memory has sort of had a standard interpretation for a long, long time. So what an interesting endorsement and comment by your mentor. Dr. Butson, you wanna start off with how, what have we learned? Sure, I'm, I'll start off with one that uh, is related to uh, patients. Uh, that I see, and it's one that uh, many of my families are very confused about. And I'll let uh, Elizabeth maybe talk about uh, one of the ones that that happens with the normal uh, memory. So um, my uh, patients will often, you know, come in and say, you know, my my father, you know, he's really having trouble uh, remembering, like what happened yesterday or the week before, but I don't think it's, you know, Alzheimer's or something like that because he can remember his childhood so well. He can remember his childhood better than I can remember my childhood. So, you know, what's wrong with his memory that, you know, he can't remember things yesterday, but he can remember things from 50 years ago. Doesn't that mean his memory is really good? And, you know, it turns out that, that's actually a perfect story for uh, Alzheimer's because when the part of the brain is damaged by Alzheimer's, it damages the part that is able to form new memories and it leaves intact 
the parts of the brain that can retrieve all of our old information, which includes sort of facts about the world, like what temperature water boils at, but it also includes old uh, memories like, you know, the stories of our, our childhood and when we're a teenager and things like that. All of those uh, sort of old remote memories, those are actually quite well preserved in Alzheimer's. And in fact, the pattern you see is that people with Alzheimer's begin to talk more and more and more about the things that happened, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, because those are at the top of their head. Those are at the top of their mind and they don't remember current events and they don't remember what happened yesterday or uh, last week. So that's sort of one uh, example of a common you know, misconception about memory, you know, that people think, well, if your memory's bad, it's bad for everything. No, but it turns out it can be impaired in different ways. So what does that say about the mechanism of encoding then? And how is that the thing? Am I getting it right here that encoding then is really the difficulty in dimensions? Yeah, well, so the, the um, in Alzheimer's, I would uh, describe it as the, the next stage, which is the the storage of the memory, you know, it can't it can't be uh, stored. So the the encoding would be, you know, the ability to sort of pay attention to it, to sort of keep it in your mind, maybe repeat it back to yourself. So, for example, if I give a patient with Alzheimer's uh, a list of words to remember, and I say, okay, I'm going to give you five words. I want you to keep these words in mind. Say them back to me. Uh, many Alzheimer's patients are actually able to do that, at least in the early stage of the disease. But then even if I go through those words, you know, two times, three times, four times, five times, I then say, okay, well, now we're going to do some different things for 10 minutes, and then we'll come back to those words. You know, then I come back to them 10 minutes later, and they're like, uh, words? What? What words? I don't remember you giving me any words to remember. And, and so it's that that sort of storage uh, uh, problem is, is how I think about it. You know, I know I'm not saying anything people don't already know, but we've been so worried for decades now about Alzheimer's in particular and dementias in particular. And there's so many families who are impacted by this. How, how will this book potentially help them manage what's going on? And, and perhaps is there a way to, to at least delay the process or even prevent it? Dr. Kensinger? So I hope that part of what our book can be really helpful in doing is helping people to understand the differences between memory problems that aren't of concern and that are a very normal part of the experience of remembering, as we've talked about, there can be a lot of upsides to forgetting and forgetting in many ways is actually a very natural process. But I think some of those are things that, especially as we get older, we can get very anxious when suddenly we don't remember the name of the person that's coming toward us, or we don't remember the last time that we ate at a restaurant. And we fear that this actually means that we're started on, on some trajectory of pathological aging. So I think, you know, number one, I would say that I hope that this book can help people to identify what is just normal forgetting that everyone experiences to some extent, and what are the sorts of forgetting that might really indicate that there are concerns. 
Um, and we do then spend some time as well talking about some of the different types of, especially age-related changes that can happen in the brain that can lead to different changes in memory. And we do try to distinguish those that commonly accompany aging for all of us, where one of the biggest ones is that we start even more to have memories that operate at that gist broad conceptual level and that leave out some of the details. That's a very normal difference that happens when we're 70 years old and remembering something versus when we were 20 years old and that we're, and we were remembering something. But we also really try to emphasize in the book that that isn't always a bad thing. As we just talked about, there are lots of reasons why remembering at that gist level can actually be really important for being able to make good decisions and efficient decisions. And so we try to really present this in a way that um, you know isn't just presenting this as a downside of aging. Sometimes, of course, we experience it that way, that we really wish that we could remember exactly what we ordered at this restaurant so we would know to order it again. Um, right? But it can actually be more helpful sometimes for our ability to make smart decisions, um, you know, and, and I would go so far as to say that some of the wisdom that comes with age may actually be related to this tendency for memory to become very good at extracting that gist, at storing just those most essential elements so that we can very rapidly use that information to help ourselves. So we contrast those normal changes with aging to changes that might be indicative of pathology like Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, and other changes um, that, that Andrew, of course, has researched and worked with those patients extensively. And the, the only thing I'd like to add that the other thing our book uh, spends a lot of time on, we have a whole section on this, is that we talk about what everyone can do to make it less likely that they will end up developing Alzheimer's or another late life disorder of memory. And that includes aerobic exercise, eating a Mediterranean menu of foods, being engaged in social activities, having a good sleep, um, uh, spending time with sort of novel, cognitively stimulating activities, um, listening to music actually can be uh, beneficial. And some new research suggests that watching more than an hour of TV a day is actually bad for your cognition and uh, can increase your risk of Alzheimer's. So uh, turn off the TV, spend some time with friends and go dancing because that way you get the aerobic exercise, the social activities, and the music all at once. What is, I mean, these are wonderful suggestions. And I, I, I think people would love to be able to just go dancing and hang out with friends and be social and listen to music. And, you know, it's sad that during COVID, a lot of that was, was really inaccessible. But what does this say then about the mechanism of what's happening in our brain? If these are the things that can help prevent the course, what does that say about what's going on? You know, I'm not sure that anyone really knows for sure, but I think that there is increasing evidence that we need to properly stimulate our brain in order for not only it to sort of function properly, but it to be sustained. I'm going to use a metaphor that's just a metaphor, but you know our our brain is a little bit like a muscle, and you need to exercise it to keep it strong. And 
I do think we're beginning to see some at, at least um, um, sort of circumstantial evidence, some correlational evidence that suggests that when there is a lack of input or a lack of use of the brain, then the parts of the brain that aren't being used or aren't being stimulated will begin to shrink and that that can lead to problems. And I'll give sort of two example with the television example. It turns out that, you know, as opposed to doing things like reading, or you'll be pleased to know, I think listening to the radio, which involves you sort of actively imagining and envisioning, you know, sort of what's going on and putting the pieces together. You know, watching TV is too much of a passive process. Now, some parts of the brain are active for sure, like the visual cortex, but a lot of the brain is just not active in, in when it watches, you know, uh, uh, TV. And the other uh, piece of the puzzle is hearing loss. Now, hearing loss is one of the uh, most associated, most correlated factors with the development of uh, Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, when I first heard about this correlation, I was like, well, sure, people don't hear well, how are they going to remember things? So, you know, that's all it is. But it's not all it is, it turns out. Um, it seems that when people have trouble hearing, they end up not participating in activities as much, they become socially isolated. And it seems to be that social isolation, which is also independently correlated with um, uh, an increased incidence of Alzheimer's disease that seems to be uh, important. So you, you all evening, you have asked amazing questions and you asked another one in terms of, you know, why, you know, why is this the case? We don't really know, but that's the supposition. Well, there's more to talk about with this. Uh, I really look forward to going dancing, though. That would be really great. I love listening to music. I love writing music. And I love also the social interaction. And I, off air, we were also talking about um, a mnemonic, an acronym, a, a way to remember things. Who right, so that? Dr. Kinziger, go ahead. So this is really about how to create that structure of building blocks in the first place. So perhaps you are a student who's taking a class and you're trying to actually retain the information that your professor is telling you, or perhaps you are at a party and you're being introduced to a number of people and you're trying to remember their names. And we realized that we could really distill the critical advice as to what you need to do to be sure that you're getting those building blocks taped together and getting those blueprints written into four pieces of advice that conveniently form the acronym FOUR, F-O-U-R. And that refers to focusing your attention, the number one most important thing, it's also the number one thing that most people don't do enough of is you're at that party, you're focused on where the drinks are and you're not actually paying enough attention to the person as they're introducing themselves and saying their name. So the first is focus attention. The next two are to organize and to understand the information. And that's so important because 
you can think about each of those building blocks as being a well-organized chunk of information. Um, chunk is actually a scientific term, believe it or not. And the idea is that our memory actually works by storing chunks of information. And that at any given time, what we can hold in our mind is about three or four chunks of information. So if information isn't well-organized, if we don't understand its meaning, it's gonna be a lot of different chunks of information and it's gonna be hard to, to keep track of many of them. But if we're able to well organize the information, we can fit a lot more content into one of those single blocks. And so that can allow us to essentially expand the capacity of the amount of information that we can store. We're, of course, not really expanding the capacity. We're just changing how much we're fitting into each of those building blocks. Um, so again, those are critical steps. This is one of the reasons why phone numbers are chunked into a three-digit area code, a three-digit start, a four-digit end. That's helping us to chunk those uh, digits so that we can remember all of them. It would be very difficult if we were just trying to do it as a random string of 10 numbers. And then that last letter, the R in four, stands for relating to the information in some way. So sometimes we might be able to find ways to make the information relevant to ourselves. So again, you know, the student in that class might actually be thinking about when do they need to use this information and kind of tangibly, uh, tangibly imagining that situation so that they can make the information seem more relevant. Sometimes what that can mean is trying to realize associations that you already have with the content. So someone tells you their name, maybe you realize that that is a similar name to someone you know, or the same name as an author that you've read, whatever the connection might be, actually making a conscious note of that relation is going to help you to remember that information. So again, it's focus your attention, organize the information, be sure you understand the meaning of the information, understand the name that someone just told you that you heard it correctly, and then relate that information to something important to you or to something that you already know. And doing those four things is going to tremendously increase the likelihood that you're actually going to get the content into your memory. And now there are techniques how to focus, because that for some people that's so difficult. Yeah, it, it can be difficult. And um, uh, we do talk about one way that many people have learned to better uh, focus their attention, which is actually to practice mindfulness. And a lot of different ways to do it. I'm not saying there's only one way, but Almost all of mindfulness uh, techniques, they, they're all similar in that they, they teach us to be more aware of ourselves and the environment around us, to be focused on the present moment rather than to be, you know, sort of daydreaming and not paying attention to the present uh, moment. Um, and so that can be one way to help focus attention a little bit better. And there's one other way that many people all around the world use if they need a little bit of increased focus. And that is they have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or another caffeinated beverage. And that will, can help with uh, focus a little bit as well as, uh, as you may have uh, experienced yourself. 
course, you don't want to drink too much no. of the caffeine uh, because that gets you all jittery and then that gives you the opposite effect. But a little bit can be helpful. And then, yeah, Dr. Kenzo, what about organization and organizing? Are, are there tips that people can use to do that after they've done the focusing? So I think it depends on the content that you're trying to remember, what is going to mo be most helpful for you in terms of organizing information. And so we give some specific strategies for things like when you're trying to remember names, where there's something like organizing the content might and might tie into relating it as well, where you might actually be trying to identify a facial feature and then link it to something about the person's name, um, you know, in whatever way feels natural to you in the moment. And we talk a lot also about the fact that the more kind of distinctive associations that you can make, the funnier they are, the more bizarre they are, all of those elements are also going to contribute to making information more memorable. So sometimes it's not just about organizing and relating in kind of mundane ways, but actually figuring out really creative kind of bizarre ways to do that, that can actually help you to retain information. And again, what does that say about our brain? That the more sort of almost silly the association, the quicker we can retrieve it. It's almost like a highlighter. Yeah, it is exactly right, like a highlighter. Yeah, well, you, you know, I think, it, Here's sort of the, the paradox. It's like, so, you know, as a uh, medical student, you know, I had to remember, you know, uh, tons of bones and muscles and different parts of organs and everything like that. And, you know, when I'm sitting, you know, in the way my curriculum was where, you know, my first two years, I was more or less just in the classroom, right? Just like your first two years. Absolutely. Right? That's right. Yeah. You know, and then the third and fourth years, you know, then you're out and you're seeing patients and things like that. And if they struck, you know, if, you know, so when I'm just sitting in the classroom and I'm trying to remember all these bones, they don't have much meaning to me, even though I could organize it, I didn't really understand it in terms of how it applies to a patient. Okay. And so in order for me to remember that information, I had to use all sorts of techniques like we talk about in our book in order to get it into my memory, because that's not what our memory is designed to remember. Our memory is designed to remember meaningful events, things that are important uh, to me. And when I got out on the wards, and I began to see patients with different diseases, you know, someone who broke their bone, all of a sudden, like, I will never forget the name of that bone, exactly where it is, the muscles that inserted, the ligaments and tendons that connected, because it related to something that was important to me. So I don't know if it's a problem or not, but the, the issue in sort of our society is we ask students to learn all sorts of information that will be meaningful in later in their life, but may not be so meaningful right now. And that's why we need to do tricks and techniques to make it distinctive, funny, important, because it, you know, we, we're not teaching them intrinsically why it is. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that some of the curricula for uh, lots of professions, including, I know, medical school, but also business school, are using a case-based approach to try to 
get that sort of real life experience at least created in a classroom setting to make things more memorable. And then you don't need to use as many tricks. But I wonder whether it also says something because about humor and how humor can really be a great tool to retain information. Absolutely. I think that the importance of positive emotions for memory is often overlooked. And it is very much the case that when information is rewarding, which can include things that are humorous, things that are silly, um, that provides a very important signal to the brain, um, often in a similar way uh, or to a similar degree as things that are highly negative would do. Um, so both the good and the bad essentially can get tagged neurobiologically in the brain as moments that are important to remember. And one thing we just briefly touched on was the importance of sleep. And we were talking about it previously more as being important for for being protective against developing Alzheimer's potentially. Um, but sleep is also so important for making sure that it is those memories that have been tagged as important that are the ones where those blueprints actually get written in a stable way that they can later be pulled out and, and that retrieval structure can be built from them. And so I think, again, there's that interesting combination where you want that humor, that silliness that can be just as powerful as experiencing a negative emotion during an event. But then after you've put in that effort of making things distinctive and humorous, you also need to sleep and make sure that the, that the brain is able to prioritize those events. Yeah. Now, I, I, I want to get to, to the, the two truths of the I am, but what, what occurs to me is, is there, and this is so simplified, under all that stress and pressure, there's, there's often a cortisol response, which leads to an inflammatory response. And with humor, it's a very different mechanism. So is there something about the inflammatory response that may be connected to this and to memory and not, and not being able to retrieve memory? Because we're just in a whole different fight, flight, freeze mode. Just there's certainly a lot of evidence that that cortisol response is doing a lot neurobiologically to change the way that the memory systems are working together and to change the way that those blueprints are getting written. And especially to have that high resolution of some event details, but lower resolution of other details or maybe having those details missing altogether. So those are the effects that the cortisol is directly having in the brain. I think it's a fascinating question whether there are other effects of the cortisol that are having secondary effects as well. I don't, to my knowledge, think that that's been researched as much, but we certainly do know that there are those more direct pathways by which cortisol is affecting um, the hormonal release in, in the brain as well, and is affecting the way that those memory blueprints get written. Because there's been so much stress over the last couple of years. We actually were talking about this on the Dr. Joe show a while ago about the cortisol response, but I... I you know, so grateful for this discussion. The, the two truths of the I am approach, remember the I am is saying that no one is broken, that we're responding the best we can to the four domains of your home domain, the social domain, your biological domain, and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. Um, because these four domains interact, a small change in any of the domains can have a big effect. So let me start with you, Dr. Kinziger. What small change can you recommend to our listeners based on the topic we're talking about tonight? 
would really suggest me taking one of those lifestyle factors that we talked about as being so important, exercise, diet, sleep, social connection, you know, choose one of those and choose to make a small change, walk for an additional five minutes, park at the far end of the parking lot, set your alarm 15 minutes later than you typically do to give yourself a little bit more sleep time, whatever it might be. But I think small steps there can be extremely impactful um, to, to memory and also to well-being more generally. And Dr. Budson, small change? So if you want to remember things better, try to stay in the present moment. Try to keep your focus on you know, yourself and the people around you. That is great. And, and again, so much of that was so difficult during COVID. I, I think COVID has hopefully reminded us how important these small things are that we've just taken for granted for so long. With, with that in mind, uh, the second truth of the I am, because everyone's interested in what you think or feel about them, which has an effect on their biological domain, because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. This means you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. I'm going to start with you, Consign Dr. Budson. What kind of influence do you want to be? Yeah, I want to try to help people uh, be their, their best self. Kensinger, what kind of influence do you want to be? Yeah, I think similarly, I, I really want to empower people to recognize how much can be under their own control. And I think we touch on that in a small way with regard to things that people can do to improve their own memories. Um, but also as an educator, that's always one of my primary goals is to help students feel empowered that they are able to learn what they want to learn, to have the career that they want to have. And I think for all of us throughout our lives to recognize that we do have that power um, and, and are, feel empowered to do that. Wonderful. Um, and again, I so appreciate how do people get the book, Why We Forget and How to Remember Better? How can they get this now? Well, they can go to their local library, which uh, hopefully will have a copy, and of course their local bookstore and the usual online retailers uh, have it as well. And I will say that in addition to the uh, print version, there's also an ebook version and an audio version. That's great. Wow. Thank That's fantastic. Because some people, it is easier for them just to listen and as they're driving places, hopefully they pay attention to many things. So I, I, I want to thank both of you so much for coming on the show. Um, there's a lot of information here, folks, but please just remember, relax, it's okay. You can do this. Uh, and there are some very, very concrete tools right here in this book. Why we forget how to remember better the science behind memory. Dr. Budson, Dr. Kensinger, thank you so much for being on the Dr. Joe Show tonight. And Tom, we'll see you next week. Thank you all.